0: Let me tell you about one of the times that the early church nearly died. Let me tell you about one of the times that not connect church, not any specific church, but I mean like the church in the biggest, broadest sense was nearly destroyed. The year was 250 AD. So we're going way, way back. We're about 200 or so years after Jesus has been crucified. By the Roman Empire. And for 200 years, the church has kind of struggled along. They have several thousand members scattered throughout the Roman Empire. But at this particular point in history, it's actually quite difficult to be a Christian. In the Roman Empire, if you did not subscribe to, if you did not believe in, if you did not worship the Roman pantheon of gods, then you were a bit of an outcast. They would tolerate people like that in their society, but they really didn't welcome them. So it was hard for Christians to do business in the world they lived in. It was hard for them to own property. It was hard for them to have a voice. They were getting by, but they were struggling quite a bit. Then in 250 AD, a plague swept through the Roman Empire a plague of smallpox. Now, I thought I knew what smallpox were. I thought it was kind of just like chickenpox. But I thought, you know, as I was putting this message together, let me Google it just so I can kind of know exactly what it was that they were dealing with. Don't do that, you guys. It will ruin your week, okay? It is a terrible, horrible, awful disease that I, ha- I just had no idea how difficult it must have been. We know from history that during this plague, In around 250 AD, one-third of the Roman Empire was killed because of the disease and its complications. I want you to imagine that. Imagine one-third of Canada dying because of a pandemic that spread through our country. In our case, it might be 11 million people that died from this particular disease. Historians tell us at one point in the city of Rome alone, 5,000 people a day were being carried outside of the city walls and burned because the disease was ravaging the communities. It got so bad, that people would actually abandon their family members. If anybody in the household started to show any signs of sickness whatsoever, people would actually force them out of the house. Not out of malice, but because they didn't know what else to do. They thought the only way we can protect the rest of the healthy members of our family is to force people out. And so they would push out elderly grandparents. They would push out little babies and everything in between. Because these people were cast out into the streets, they lived homeless, they had no care whatsoever, the vast majority of people that were pushed out of their homes ended up catching the disease, whether they had it or not, and eventually died. Now, we were so early in history that these people had no concept of microbes and germs, right? We understand smallpox today. We know what to do in order to treat it. But in the earliest centuries of the church, they had no clue what was going on. And in the Roman world, they assumed that anytime something bad happened, it was because the gods were angry about something and they were punishing humanity. So anything bad that happened, they were always looking for the reason behind it. Someone, some group that they could blame it on and then deal with, hopefully to appease the gods. The Roman emperor at the time was a guy named Decius, and he decided the reason that the empire was going through this terrible, terrible uh, health epidemic was because of atheist Christians living among them. Now that phrase might seem very strange to you, atheist Christians, that's a weird thing to say. It almost seems like it's contradictory in our minds. But for Romans, an atheist was anyone who denied their pantheon of gods. And since Christians believed there was only one God and his name wasn't Jupiter or Mars or Minerva or any of the other deities that they worshiped, Romans looked at Christians and called them atheists. So the emperor at the time, Decius, decided that the gods were angry that there were these atheist Christians living among them. And that's why this pandemic happened. And so he passed a law. The law was that everybody in the empire had to go to a pagan temple and make a sacrifice to one of the Roman gods. It had to be done in the presence of an official. It had to be signed like you would get a certificate that said, hey, on Friday, Dan made his sacrifice to Jupiter. It was like something you would frame and hang in your house so that everybody would know that you were one of the okay ones. You were one of the good ones. You weren't part of the problem. Now, the penalty for not following through was death. If you would not make these sacrifices, they would put you to death. And there were many well-known and leading Christians of the day who refused to make sacrifices. They felt like it was contrary to their relationship with God. And so they were actually put to death for it. The problem is that this edict that the emperor passed didn't solve anything. The, the Romans were still dying. Christians were still dying at the exact same rate as everybody else. Things just continued to get worse and worse and worse. We know from historians that people eventually abandoned the cities altogether because everybody lived so close and there was no like way to prevent the spread of the disease. There was no sanitation in the city. I mean, it was a rough place to live, especially when there was sickness going through. And so people, uh, not too long after the epidemic started, they began to abandon the cities and they would leave behind anybody who was sick. They would say, sorry, you can't go with us. You need to stay here. Hopefully you get the treatment that you need, but we've got to protect the rest of the fam, and they would take off. Now, at that point, something really interesting happened. The Christians of the day made a decision. They decided that they were not going to abandon the cities. They were not going to abandon their family members and their neighbors and their business associates. They decided that they were going to stay behind in the cities, and they were going to give care to the people who were left. We know today that smallpox is only, uh, it's only deadly in about 30% of the cases. So if you get some very basic care, the odds are you're going to have a miserable experience for a few weeks, but then you'll survive and you'll be good to go. They didn't know any of that. Christians had no idea that it was really a curable disease. They just knew that they were facing death anyway. They were likely to be put to death. And two, they had a deep sense that seeking the good of other people is fundamental to what it means to follow Jesus. And so they decided, when nobody else in society would, that they were going to offer their lives, put themselves and their families at risk for the sake of the world around them. This plague lasted for 15 or 20 years. Over that time, we told you, one-third of the population died. But at the end of it, something fascinating had happened. So many Christians were left, and so many of the sick Romans had been cared for by Christians. They were so moved by the compassion of these Jesus people that they saw, that after they got healthy, they abandoned their Roman religion, and they gave their hearts to Christ. There's a historian named Rodney Stark. He's at uh, University of Baylor in Texas. and He writes this awesome account of this story. And what he says is the care and the compassion of Christians was so different from everything that the Roman world knew at the time that these people who were cared for and actually survived because of it, they became Christians and it actually shifted the balance of power in the Roman Empire towards the Christian church. They were on the brink of destruction. They were going to be wiped out by these same people that they stayed behind to nurse and to help. And that example, that witness, that willingness to give themselves for the people around them literally changed the course of history. That same thing played out several more times throughout the history of the early church. And in fact, it happens all the way up into the modern world today. To us, it makes sense, right? Like if we knew somebody that was sick, we would do everything we could to help them. Of course, if you see somebody in need, you do whatever you can to relieve their suffering, to help them experience something better. But you have to understand that in the early church, in the ancient world, nobody thought that way. Nobody thought to care for the people around them. In the Roman world, they practiced something called liberalitas, And liberalitas was a virtue where you were generous to other people, A, out of your abundance. That is, you would give if and only if you had extra to give. Not only that, but they had decided they would only give to people who were of the same social standing as they were or higher. And the reason for that was, in the Roman mind, according to this principle of liberalitas, we want to serve people who are down on their luck so that when they get back on their feet, they can return the favor. Everything was about, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, quid pro quo, I'm going to give so that I can get. That's the way the ancient world operated. They absolutely ignored people who were suffering, poor people, people who had disabilities and health problems, they were ignored in society by the Roman world because of this uh, this principle called liberalitas. But Christians operated according to a different principle. The principle that they operated according to was called caritas. It's the word that we get charity from. And charity was different from liberality in that Christians didn't give so that they could get. In fact, they specifically sought out people who could never repay them, people who were ignored by the rest of the world around them, and they gave and gave and gave, often at great sacrifice and risk to themselves because they believed that's what it meant to follow Jesus. And that new attitude, that willingness to give, that direction that they had from Jesus to offer themselves with no strings attached generosity, it literally changed the course of the Roman Empire and eventually the course of history itself. Now, when I read through stuff like that, when I hear stories of people who give themselves, who serve, who sacrifice, who provide, the the question I always ask is why? Like, why would they give everything? Why would they risk their own health and their own family back in 250 AD to help the people who were persecuting them? Why would they do that? Why would Christians throughout history give their resources and time to start hospitals and orphanages and universities? The public versions of all of those things throughout history were always started by Christians. Why is that? Did you know that for 2,000 years, the Christian church has always been the largest humanitarian aid organization on the planet? Always. What would cause people in the 21st century to give 5% of their income or 10% or 15% of their income to the church and to charitable causes around the world? What would cause people to do that? What would cause you and I to sit here for four weeks and talk about being generous, offering our lives for the world around us? What motivates that kind of generosity? What is the fire burning inside of some people that would cause them to give to that ridiculous extent? This morning, I want to answer that question. I want to answer that why question, because the why question explains it all. If you can understand why the early Christians served the way they did, it'll make sense. If you can understand the why behind generosity according to the Christian faith, then you understand why it's not that big of a deal for those of us who are believers to give ourselves and to give into a crazy measure. It's not that hard to understand when you get the why. Let me tell you what it's not. It's not because we think we're good people. It's not that. In fact, we're the first to admit that we're really not that great. There are lots of things I could do that I don't do. Okay? So it's not that we think we're good people or it's we don't give in order to prove that we're good. We don't give in order to earn God's favor. We're not like, well, we got to stay on God's good side. I better put some money in the offering plate. Nope. That's not our motivation. That'll get old really quick. It's not simply because we want to make the world a better place. We do. I hope that our world becomes a better place, but that's not the motivation. That's not the reason that Christians give themselves or that Christians should be the most generous folks on earth. And it's not even like, well, we hope somebody would do the same for us if we were down on our luck. It is something much deeper, something much more fundamental something much more beautiful that causes us to say, God, you can have all of it. I'm not going to hold on to any of it because of the why. The why is found in John chapter number 3 found in a lot of places in the Bible, but we're going to be in John chapter number three this morning. The why behind generosity. Why should Christians be the most generous people on earth? Let's look at what the scripture says in John chapter number three, verse 16 to find out. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Maybe you've been around church for a while and that verse is so standard, you've heard it, you've read it, it just goes in one ear and out the other. Maybe this is the first time you're seeing it and you look at that verse and you say, I don't get it. I don't see in there where it would motivate me to great, ridiculous, unbelievable levels of generosity. And so I want to spend just a couple moments in this verse this morning because I believe it has the power to transform the way you look at yourself, at your resources, at your relationship with God and the world around you. This verse starts by saying that God loved, God loves Now, I've told you before, I wasn't raised in church. I was 18 before I started going to church for the first time. And somewhere prior to that, I'm not sure exactly where, I had gotten the impression that God was pissed off, to be perfectly blunt. That's kind of the the image that was in my head. I don't know where exactly I picked that up. My guess is that the only things I knew about God were what I knew from books and TV and movies and friends who only knew about God from books and TV and movies. And so it was like the one thing everybody could always agree on was that God was mad at everybody. Period, end of story. God is not happy with any of us, according to the common story told, that he sets these arbitrary rules and then none of us are able to follow them, And so he gets mad and he punishes us and he sends plagues and he gives you a flat tire or a dead battery or sickness comes your way or you lose your job and it's all as a result of the God who's mad at you because you don't measure up. That was the attitude that I had about God. That might be the attitude, the the picture, the story that some of you have about God this morning. That may have been the narrative that you have been told over and over again about him. But when I was 18, I met a group of people who had actually read the Bible for themselves. They didn't buy into the stories that people told them. They didn't just get their understanding of God from the movies they watched or the literature that they read. They didn't accept the common story. They actually sought out God themselves. And when they read the scriptures, what they found and what they helped me to understand is that God loves. At the most fundamental nature From the ground floor, the very beginning of this verse, the beginning of everything in truth, is the understanding, the belief, and the faith that God is love. That he's not angry. He doesn't look at me and see all of my mistakes, and trust me, there are plenty of them, just ask my wife. He doesn't look at all of my mistakes and say, I cannot believe this kid. If he just messes up one more time, I'm gonna squish him like a bug. I can't wait for it. Do it, Daniel, I dare you, right? That's not the way that God operates. According to the scripture, everything God does is motivated first and foremost by love. This verse says that God so loved the world. He so loved us. Man, the ancient world thought of the gods as, as like in control, but they were capricious, you know? They treated humanity as toys. They played with them. They made their lives miserable for their own sport. That was their conception of God. There are a lot of people in our modern world who believe that God is, A, nothing more than a cosmic accountant. You know, he's keeping track of who's naughty and nice. He's ready, you know, to destroy somebody if they step too far. Or they believe that God really is. He's on the war path. He is ready to let loose on all of us because he can't stand us. Can I beg you, please, for, I mean, from the bottom of my heart, can I beg you, don't believe that without checking it out first for yourself. To go to the scripture, read the New Testament, and you'll find over and again the picture of God not as an angry tyrant, not as an arbitrary rule maker, or the policeman, or anything like that. You find a picture of God as a loving, heavenly Father. Man, I think there are probably some of you here today and you need to hear that more than anything else. God loves you like a perfect father would love you. He's not angry at you. Your past, your doubts, your secrets, they don't make you unlovable to him. He really is motivated first and foremost by love. Now, if that's the God that we serve, then it seems to make sense to me that we ought to be motivated by the exact same thing. Why should Christians be the most generous people on planet earth? Because we have what is really a unique conception of God, that God is fundamentally love, graciousness, generosity, goodness. He cares for us the way that a healthy, good father would. And that should motivate us to be very, very generous people. The verse goes on and it says, for God so loved the world. I want you to notice it doesn't say God so loved the good people. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say God so loved the wealthy or the the religious. It doesn't say for God so loved the white people or the young people or the old people. It says literally God loves the world, not just the male people, not just the educated people, not just the poor people, but every single people inside of the world, God loves them, loves you. You're included in that. There is not a single person or type of person on the planet that God does not want to redeem and have a relationship with. Everybody, including gingers, he loves us all. (laughs) Genuinely, he loves us all. Every single person on the planet is pursued by God, except they believe this false story about who God is and why he's after them. And so they keep on running. They keep trying to stay away from this God who's angry. And the whole time God is saying, you don't understand. I'm trying to tell you, I love you. That's what motivates me. That's why I pursue you. It's because I love you. Scripture says, God so loved The world. Why should Christians be the most generous people on the planet? Because we know that we see the reflection of God in every single person around us. Every person and type of person carries the image of God in them. And so when God looks at them, he sees his beloved children. When we look at them, whether they're a part of the faith or not, whether they've got it all together or not, doesn't matter. We see people who are our brothers and sisters in God. Christians should be the most generous and motivated people on the planet to serve those around them because God genuinely loves everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave His one and only Son. This is it. This is the why. This is the real reason. There are a lot of smaller reasons. We've talked about a couple. We'll talk about a couple more. But this is it. This is why Christians throughout history, and this is why today as believers in Jesus, we should be willing to give ourselves no matter what, without any strings, without any caveats, without any reservations to say to God, Everything I have, everything I am is yours. The reason is because God gave. In a world where we spend one day a year verbalizing how thankful we are for everything we have, and then we spend the next eight weeks fighting each other over the last toy on the shelf, In a world where every single advertisement we see tells us that our happiness is found on the other side of the next purchase. In a a society where we throw away more food than is necessary to feed every starving person on the planet. In a heart like mine that believes my identity and my value is found in the persona and my reputation that I carry. In the middle of a world where people buy and consume and hoard and steal and are jealous and envious, in the middle of all of this, where we're trying to fill this hole in our heart with stuff, God gives. His response to our greed and our selfishness and our consumption is not to get angry, it's not to take what we have, it's not to smush us like bugs. He lets us chase after all of these things and then 2,000 years in the past, he does something so significant, something so unbelievable that if you've got eyes to see, you can't help but just stop what you're doing and look back and take notice. Because we're all about getting... God's all about giving. The principle that motivates generosity in Christians throughout time in history is this one. The answer to our selfishness is God's sacrifice. The answer to our selfishness is God's sacrifice. He gave. When we're focused on taking, when we're focused on having, when we're focused on status, when we're focused on all of those things, the scripture says, because of his great love for you and for I, God gave. And not only did he give, he didn't give out of abundance. He actually gave the only thing that he had one of. Think about that. The one thing that God had one of was his son. It was the only thing in in the universe that he only had one of. And that's what he gave to us. He didn't give because he had extra laying around. He gave the thing that was most important. The one thing that he knew could get our attention. He so loved you and I that he gave his one and only son. Man, when I really grasped that, that's when the light turned on for me. That's when the switch flipped. That's when everything changed. I began to understand that what I had been told about God, what I had been told about Christianity, what I had been told about all of that was completely at odds with what I read in the Bible. Instead, I see a loving father who went to extreme lengths to get my attention, and to help me to understand that he would give everything for me if I would give everything to him. The answer to my selfishness is God's sacrifice. It transformed me. I think if God had shown up and said, Dan, I need you to try harder, You need to give a little bit more. You need to work at it. You need to be a generous person. Make the world a better place. You would want somebody to do the same for you. And you want me to be happy with you, don't you? If he had shown up and said all of those things, I might have tried for a little while, but it could not have transformed my heart. But when I see a God who's willing to offer himself in the person of Jesus, that gets my attention. That's generosity that has the power to change my heart. And I think it has the power to change yours as well. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes, the passage says, it doesn't say whoever gives 10% of their income will be saved. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say whoever's generous, whoever's a good person, whoever makes up for their mistakes, whoever lives a perfect life. It doesn't say any of that. It says whoever believes in Him, That word belief, it doesn't just mean like, oh yeah, I believe there's a God. No, it means like a trust, a leaning into, a, 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 a belief that goes beyond just the mental. It moves down into the heart and soul. It is an absolute faith that God is who he says he is and he'll care for you the way that he says he will. God calls us to believe. That's it. Another lie you may have been told about faith in Christianity is that you need to live a good life in order to prove that you're worthy of God's love. And when you read this verse, it's incredibly clear. All God asks of you is that you trust him. That's it. If you can trust him through the person of Jesus, then he goes on to say, you will not perish. You will have eternal life. Hey, that phrase eternal life, it's one that pops up over and again in the scripture. Here, it's called eternal life. In other places in the Bible, it's called abundant or everlasting life. At Connect Church, we call it overflowing life. It's the opportunity for us to open ourselves up to God and to open ourselves up to the world. It's the chance to experience life as it was meant to be lived. It's the opportunity to have the world that we all know should be, but for some reason never seems to come about. It is the chance... To have a real relationship with God through Jesus. Why should Christians be the most generous people on earth? It's because we believe that God is fundamentally love. That he he extends that love to every single person that you could ever lay eyes on. That he proved his love and his generosity. When he offered his son for us, when we weren't thinking about him, we were trying to find happiness in other places. And God grabbed our attention by fighting against our sinful nature in such an unbelievable, gracious, generous way. And then he offers us the opportunity to begin life anew with him. That doesn't happen by giving money. You can't buy your way into God's good graces. It doesn't happen by living a good life. You can't earn your way into God's good graces. The response that we should have towards this generous God who gives and gives and gives is to give in return. Not our money, not just our time, but to give ourselves.